Welcome to Thriving in Business and Life. I'm Christopher Harding. And I'm Will Wilkinson. Welcome back to the program. Well, we've got a really interesting topic today, uh, Chris, which is the idea, and it's a challenging one for a lot of people, of asking for help. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, why, why do you think it is? I mean, in your experience, you, you coach a lot of people around this topic. Why do they resist asking for help? Why do we resist asking for help might be a better way to say it. Well, I can only speak from the culture that I've grown up in. Uh, it's deeply embedded in our culture that part of the, a central part of the process of individuation as we grow up is to become self-sufficient. And especially for men, our role models are take-charge action heroes, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, you know, doing it my way, Frank Sinatra. So we're not exactly encouraged to consider the idea of working collaboratively to be any kind of strength. You know, it's, it's uh, almost as if, from what you're saying, asking for help is viewed or could be viewed as a sign of weakness. Well, that's exactly what it is. Uh, we talk about this in our, our course, how for men... It's uh, a challenging thing to do because we're supposed to be self-sufficient. For women, it's a challenging thing to do because it proves they're weaker. And for experts, it's a challenging thing to do because they're supposed to know it all. <laughs> that doesn't leave many people. You know, it's interesting, as you say, uh, you know, for women, uh, you know, it could be seen as proof that they're weaker. Uh, having had a chance to coach a lot of executives who are women, uh, I've heard women say that before, that um, it's a real double bind right. because by nature, maybe how somebody was acculturated. I was working with a woman, for example, from another country the other day, top executive in a, in a global company. And she said that it's really interesting that for her to ask questions or ask for help or not know people viewed that as a sign of her uh, being not qualified or incompetent and obviously not only is there culture you know cultural expectations but she was fighting against a bias that already existed right you know i really admire women who fight their way in that corporate environment who have to deal with that yeah yeah such a such a challenge and it, it, it's it's interesting as we're talking about this uh, I had a chance to work with uh, Cisco Systems at one point and work with their consultants uh, who served all over the world. And one of the things we talked about is Cisco's built this great kind of the collaborative infrastructure for the Internet. You know, a hmm. lot of their software, um, you know, like WebEx and things like that, uh, really enhance the ability to collaborate. But they said the challenge was never the technology because that was the easy part. The challenge was getting people to be in a mindset mm. of collaboration. Isn't that interesting? Well, a mindset is something we, we deal with all the time. Change our thinking and then everything else begins to change. Yeah. I mean, you go back to some of our initial uh, you know, chapters in the book or modules in the, uh, in the course. And, you know, we talk about the power of story. What's the story right. I'm living out? And if, if I've had a story embedded that I, being a strong individual is, first of all, the, the desire to be. And secondly, that means you got to do it on your own. Right. The famous men don't ask for directions, yeah. you yeah. know, kind of stereotype. Um, Wow, that makes it difficult in a world where knowledge and change is, is happening so fast. 
Well, let me ask you, because you've been consulting now for decades, what does it take, particularly I'm thinking for a man in a, in a strong leadership position who's not inclined to ask for help, to begin to ask for help, whether it's because of the pressure of change and circumstance or you know, shifts in his company or just that what he's doing isn't working, what, what contributes to him actually making that kind of significant change? Well, in the experiences I've seen, um, and I could probably reflect on this for myself too, the first thing would be that, uh, you know, what they're doing isn't working. It's not yielding the results it right. needs to. So, so there's some uh, reason to change. Yeah, I guess you could say the impetus would be desperation right. <laughs> at that point. But, you know, just let me interject here because we're speaking very reasonably here. Let's remember Einstein, pretty smart guy, said that insanity is defined as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Right. So we're challenging that tendency, even, even when we see that we're not getting the results we want, to continue doing the same thing. So my question, which you're poised to answer here, is what makes a difference where a man particularly suddenly says, you know what, I'm going to quit doing the same thing over and over again because I want different results. Yeah, I, I think that the consequence is dire enough or the reward strong enough to where we're motivated to, to change a habit, right? Yeah. We get we got into the whole habit formation in our in our course and, you know, that you have to change neural pathways, basically. Yeah. Uh, catch yourself doing it right. Make small changes. And that's what I've seen a lot of organizations doing who are starting to, to change the culture and the expectations within the company. So, in other words, uh, the whole idea of a coach leader yeah. versus a leader who's a director, you know, directing people. If they're coaching people, the very nature of coaching is asking questions. Yeah. And so teaching people how to ask questions, it, it's remarkable. We get into some of our coaching training with, with leaders, and literally, first of all, it's hard for them to ask their people questions. They want to just tell them stuff. Yeah, right. And the people don't want to be asked the question. The, them, yeah. Sometimes the yeah. people say, well, just tell me what to do. Right. right. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Yeah. yeah. Then the second piece is, Teaching them how to ask an open-ended question. Yes. So not a yes or no question, but a, well, what are the various ways you would think about solving this, John, or, you know, Mary Lou, you know, so that they're starting to basically teach people how to think through a problem by asking great questions. So that leader as coach movement, I think, has started to, to shift and you've got a whole new crop of leaders, of course, coming up through the yes. ranks now yes. who are being trained with different expectations. That and the whole process of inclusion, which we'll get into in another uh, show, I think are the two drivers for teaching people how to be collaborative and finding the value in it. Well, it's a paradigm shift from hierarchy, command and control, giving orders, following orders, to what we call leading from within the circle. Right. Where the right. leader sees him or herself as an integral part of the team, and they're not just dropping uh, an order and leaving. They're sticking around to continue to be part of the team. Right. So that's really about leveraging the power, the genius of the group, of the team. Let's talk about that a little bit, because it's very different to consider our results accruing because of the efforts of the entire team 
than because of one brilliant leader who's instructing the team to follow uh, what he suggests doing. Yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, men, women, I think they're all faced with some of the same expectations depending on the company they're in or the company culture they're in. But here's an example I uh, experienced with a client uh, a few years ago. They had, uh, they were building a new plant manufacturing plant in in a Latin American country. And so they you know they had a lot of very qualified Latin American employees but they sent down a few people from headquarters in the US uh, expats as they called them right, right to go down and make sure everything happened according to standard. So this one leader gets down there and there's a decision to be made about a manufacturing process on, on the manufacturing floor. So he calls in the leader of that area and says, here's what we're faced with. What do we need to do? Uh-huh. Well, the leader happened to be part of, inherently in his culture, a much more collaborative culture. So he said, well, let me go talk to my people, uh-huh. which right. to him seemed reasonable, yeah, right? I sure. want to go tap into sure. the intelligence of the group. Yeah, yeah. The, the U.S. leader said, I, if I would have wanted your group's opinion, I would have asked them, I want you to tell me what you think we oh, should do. Wow. And he he said, transplanted his values. Yeah. Well, yeah, and his whole style. See, he, he couldn't see what that leader wanted to do as being intelligent and strong. Uh-huh. He saw it as weak. Uh-huh. So they had this back and forth, and finally the, the, the Latin American leader said, listen, if you want a solid answer, I have got to go talk to my people to make sure I get you all of the information. So he did and came back, and and the U.S. Uh, leader was now back in, in the States, and he was talking about how it was going, and he was criticizing this Latin American leader, saying he was weak. And they had me sitting in just mm-hmm. to listen for bias and different right. things like that. And as he said that, I said, hey, hang on a second. What what made you feel he was weak? Uh, and it was the very fact that he went and sought help. That or he didn't advice. know it all on his own. Yeah, yeah. Or, or wasn't willing to like make a statement. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he, gratefully, he was very willing to to have that discussion and mm-hmm. listen to that. But it, it, I'd never seen it demonstrated quite so plainly uh-huh. as in that situation. Well, this must be a tremendous change for someone like that gentleman in his position. I'm trying to to put myself in that room, like as a, a fly on the wall, and imagine, what, what did you detect from him as you raised that question? And I can just imagine him kind of beginning to get a dawning that there was something he hadn't seen there at all. What, what, what was that like? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, first of all, it was clear that he was frustrated uh-huh. and that he'd been sent down there, and he was feeling a lot of pressure that for things to turn out right. So, right. you know... As soon as we apply pressure, right, uh, as we've talked about before, biases are going to start to cycle. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. going to have an amygdala hijack where right. we're in survival brain. Right. And since this guy was acting out of the norm for him, it was suspect. Mm. And, and you know, they hadn't really gotten into a collaborative culture yet at that point. Mm. They were still much more command and control. Right. So, you know, as we talked about it, I asked him, what was the result when he came back with his people's feedback? And he said, well, oh, the information was good. (laughs) And I was like, well, so were you focused on the result or the style? And he stopped for a minute and he went, well, 
wow, I, I guess yeah. the style. Uh-huh. I said, because does the style matter yeah. if you got the right answer expeditiously? Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and he just really, it, he was befuddled. We talked for quite a while. He became a, a real interesting coaching client for a mm-hmm. while because of his realization that he had allowed his own bias about work style to completely impact the way he, you know, judged people. Well, you know, we're discussing a prevailing Western bias about work style. I think kind of going away of the dinosaur, but still, it's been prevalent that you don't need to ask for help unless you don't know how to do it on your own. And we're redefining the whole idea of asking for help as the norm. You know, that it's a normal part of a team's operation. I think that's an important distinction to make. It's huge. Because in the first case, it's like, we won't do it at all, and then, well, we'll do it, ask for help when we need to. That's the last resort. Yeah. (laughs) Evolving all the way to, well, we start with asking for help because we're in this together. I think what what really assists in this paradigm shift is adding something to the, uh, maybe the comment, I don't know, on my own. Let's say I'm in the position of that manager who was asked, and he said, well, I'll go ask the team. I don't know on my own, but let's find out together. Who does? Yeah, let's find out who does. Let's let's discover. And, you know, as I say that, I tap into the adventure of that. It's not a failure that I'm trying to solve. It's like, well, this is going to be interesting to discover something together. Well, you know, as, as you're saying that, there is there is a huge cultural shift. A lot of it has to do with processes like Lean and Six Sigma, which are very collaborative by nature. So that's also started to help companies um, get more involved that way. There, there's something I, I wanted to, uh, two topics I'm particularly fascinated with this, uh, on this particular topic. And one is uh, getting what you ask for. Uh, right. And so, uh, you know, that's a topic that comes up in our online course, how to make sure that you actually are getting what you think you're asking for, because right. sometimes you're not being clear when you're asking for help. Well, I think the classic historical example of this is the story of King Midas. You know, he said, I want everything I touch to turn to gold. <laughs> well, there was a slight problem with that because the food he touched turned to gold, which <laughs> right. wasn't too digestible. <laughs> so I think the lesson here is be careful what you're asking for. Or, or at least be aware, right, yeah. and be, be specific. And I, and I think sometimes, uh, you know, that's a great example I can think of right off is a particular organization we were working with, and they wanted increased productivity. They wanted a certain number to hit a certain number. What they didn't also ask for is, and stay healthy mm-hmm. and keep your morale up while yeah. you're going. So the leaders who were charged with that and were going to be bonused on that basically burned out some of their best people uh-huh. and had people leave and there was this morale crisis and so forth. So. You know, starting to look at what we ask for and make sure, we've talked about this before, that you stand upstream and ask yourself, what are the likely future consequences of what I'm asking for? Well, yes, and this also reminds us to be in service to a vision. Because if there isn't an overarching vision, it's easy to go for a short-term result and neglect the long, long-term implications. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's the the uh, the other one that uh, I, I think is is interesting too, and it goes back to the earlier question you said of not 
the 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 uh, your routine you could say was don't ask unless you don't know right, right. and and now there's this idea of ask up front because i recognize there's bound to be stuff i don't know and it's this whole idea of realizing that there are there's help you could say that may not even be on my radar yeah yeah this is a fascinating topic really because it implies at least the willingness to access intuition because if something isn't on your radar you don't see it you don't know it's there but you may have a niggling sense that there's something available or at least there's something missing right so yeah. it's actually getting into you know what's commonly called soft skills right more the intuitive skills not so uh, left brain right yeah well it's it's playing a hunch you yeah. know i i had uh I, but, and you know it's interesting just to interject here yeah how often in our heroic stories the turning point towards victory is when the hero accesses some unusual aspect of himself or the situation it isn't when he's playing by the rules so well that he succeeds <laughs> it's when he goes off uh off target a little bit follows a hunch does something unusual, and lo and behold, he gets success. So we, at some level, acknowledge that this is a good idea. Yeah, I mean, you know, mythically, at least, right? Yeah. Uh, playing a hunch, I think, it's it's difficult in very left-brain environments, mm -hmm. uh, engineering, for example, or hard science, basic science. And yet, at the same time, when you really get down to talking to engineers who are innovators, or especially basic scientists who are inventors, is is that you're you're really getting into them recognizing their own how they follow a hunch mm. and you know we there's it's hard to define what that characteristic is but this kind of takes us back to this whole idea of if i have a vision of what i'm trying to create or accomplish and let's say i just make up the story mm that life is just looking to cooperate for me. You know, it, it wants to collaborate, it wants to help me. Now that's a story, it's a frame sure. I've created. Sure. But in creating that frame, we've talked about the reticular activating system before. You know, there you how go, it, your favorite <laughs> phrase. <laughs> the unconscious mind is, you know, as soon as I believe that life is trying to help me, what I'm looking for in my awareness both subtle and, you know, overt, becomes much more finely attuned. Right. And so I start to become aware of things almost like in my peripheral vision. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm expecting for life to be cooperating with yeah. me. Well, you know, this is fascinating to consider uh, relative to communicating the vision to others, engaging people in the vision. I'd like to talk about that, but first I want to just mention uh, a couple hours ago I dropped in on a new business friend and he wanted a copy of our book so I took it over to him and he was in the middle of a, a business meeting with three of his top colleagues and they were crafting a 50 million dollar business plan and this guy's been successful before so I expect he probably will be again but why I'm mentioning it was I entered the catacombs of this dungeon windowless room and here's these guys sitting there cooking up this deal and I'm like well why don't they have a nicer office and they were all so excited about what they were doing. Clearly, the perks of a you know nice executive space didn't mean anything to them <laughs> because they were so engaged in a vision. Right. You know, so I just want to mention that to preface the conversation about engaging others in our vision. That guy did it. 
Well, that's the thing, and ex- excitement is palpable, right? And and clearly, he enrolled others. Yeah. I mean, so you could say asking for help includes enrolling others in in the uh, the vision process itself, getting them to feel like they're in on it too. Yeah, well, that's the key. So let's start by uh, discussing a little bit of how you don't do that, because that <laughs> might help our listeners. Because they got to go to work tomorrow morning, and at least some of them are going to have a vision they want to engage others in. Let's begin with what we kind of are more familiar with, how we don't do it. How do we turn people off from engaging in our vision? Well, first of all, telling them, here's the way it's going to be, and here's what I want you to do. Yeah, and be excited about it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. would you please? (laughs) Or there'll be consequences. Right. Right. So if we start thinking about the fact that we're trying to light people's brains up, right? So first of all is for us to be passionate, but also to be curious. Right to present something to them. And I, I learned about this in a really wonderful way. I had a chance to work with Toyota for a number of years as a consultant. And they really showed me this process uh, you know, of how to do that. And their whole term in Japanese, if I say this word right, was nemowashi. Huh. And what that meant was, and I think we've talked about this before, to dig around the roots of a yes, tree, right, right, and there, how that translated, you know, from an agricultural, you know, term, is that if they were going to seed an idea or plant uh-huh. an idea, uh-huh. they would go out and talk to all the different people who would maybe at some mm-hmm. point have something to do or be impacted mm-hmm. by that, mm-hmm. and they'd be sharing uh, this possible vision and what mm-hmm. did they think about it and how would they see it and how would what would have to be considered in for them well by the time they were done doing that everybody felt such a part of yeah. the process yeah. that it was now not you know my idea it was uh-huh. our idea uh-huh. and they when were the, stakeholders yeah they, they were stakeholders and when they floated the final version of the vision out there it was already full of and and you know benefiting from all this input they'd gathered in their initial stage well you know you're reminding me of uh experience I had, I think I was in my late 20s, and I've been working in community television up in Canada, and I moved to a different different town, and I was applying for a job in a, a network of small community TV stations. And so I had my meeting with the, the general manager, who was fairly young, and he told me that part of my job as a pro- program director would be to do all the other jobs, to gain some experience, you know, at the front desk, accounting, I mean, he named all these things and I just thought this was a stupid idea. <laughs> but And I didn't take the job because I didn't want to do those things. I realized later that actually it's a really good idea. Right. But it was the way he presented it, which was a fait accompli. You are going to do this if you work here. It was just part of the deal. And it was a radical idea, which I had never heard of before back then. If he had presented that differently, he could have got me on board with something which at this point I think is probably a really good idea. Yeah, I mean you just think about how do you how do you sell that? Because yeah, really what yeah. you're doing is in a way you're selling. And so if you go back to selling and say if you're selling and you're and you're actually having to sell, you're not doing a good idea. So right. so the the mentors I had in sales would have said so, Will, what do, you, what do you hope to accomplish by being here? What would you like to know about the industry? Oh, I've got this great idea, you know. 
by putting you in each of these places and giving you some experience, you'll really be ready to be in a different level of leadership. I mean, you know, they, they just yeah. the ability yeah. to get you excited about well, it. Well, yeah, because I'm getting excited about what's in it for me. Right. Just to right. be basic here. Yeah. 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 And the, basically creating a vision of, of, of how that's going to benefit you. Right. Right. He didn't do that. And so I actually missed an opportunity there. It's one of those little crossroads I've looked back at with some regret. You know, one of the things we we cover in in our book, in particular, and and a bit in the online course as well, is the whole idea that part of what's missing in a lot of both Western European and U.S. in particular relationships is a friendship where people can really ask for help. Yeah. We've been talking about it in a business sense, but right. in a personal sense, how. How willing are we, or how well have we learned how to both powerfully and gracefully ask for help from our spouse or partner, from our friends? Mm. You know, it's, it seems to be one of the great contributors to the loneliness that is so talked about now in, in social uh, science. Well, there's a virtual epidemic of loneliness in modern civilization, which really beggars belief, given how connected we are digitally. But well, and, and I guess it depends on how we use the digital format, yeah. right? Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I wonder, now I'm not of the millennial generation, surprise, surprise, uh, and I hear a lot of criticism from people about that social interaction. And yet, I also know a lot of my friends and acquaintances in that age range who are deeply connected and really support each other and get help. And I see this happening on Facebook and other platforms where the support they are able to pull around them and the support they give to others is truly amazing. And I, and I wonder somehow they didn't maybe get as infected with the epidemic of, of individualism. Yeah, they didn't get the memo. <laughs> I think it's partly a generational thing. You know, I think of my dad who had one job his entire life. He really didn't need to ask for help. Right. He, he knew right. what to do day by day. It was boring, but he did it and then collected his pension. I think today there's so much more volatility, unpredictability, uncertainty. We have five, six, seven careers. And so we're always having to learn something. And when you're learning something, you usually need help to learn it. So I think it's kind of built in to the changes that are going on in society. And my suspicion is that those who have particular trouble asking for help are maybe a little older in years. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I, I think um, one of the things I know in getting, you know, coaching leaders of, you know, older Gen X generation as well as boomers is their frustration, actually, at times mm -hmm. with the fact that their millennial employees are actually coming in and asking for help. Uh, yeah, shouldn't <laughs> need to do that, right? Yeah. Where, you know, uh, the younger Gen Xers and millennials, they're, they're much more communal, I guess you right. could say. And right. so I think, you know, and again, we don't want to put everybody in one bag because people are individuals, but it seems like there's a lot to learn from more collaborative cultures. Well, there is, and it begins with the respect for sitting in the question, because a part of the mm. old paradigm is the rush for an answer, like the gentleman you mentioned. He asked a question, he wanted an answer. The person he asked was used to asking questions, asking for help, and sitting in the not knowing for a while. And that's a that's an innovation as well. I'm, I'm in a, 
an executive group, five of us who meet every week and discussing some leadership issues in our, our valley here. And we're having a wonderful time. And one of the reasons is that we are all of us are comfortable with sitting with not knowing. <laughs> so it's not just a matter of yeah. asking for help and then getting an answer right away. It's asking for help in a way that doesn't just evoke a bunch of advice back, but but evokes this field of uncertainty that's filled with potential that is so rich, we're happy to savor it for a while without deciding, this is the answer, let's end it and move on. You know, one of the things, and you really introduced me to this idea, was was the difference between good and great leadership. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times we think of good leadership as being mediocre, but we, we made the distinction, and you in particular in our book, that sometimes great leaders are these inspirational figures. Yeah. And, you know, that's, the, again, the individualistic model, whereas a good leader, a really good leader, might be somebody who really leads from within the circle, who involves other people, who asks great questions and lets their genius shine. So we hope we're inspiring you all to show up at work tomorrow and be a good leader. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, if you're a great leader, please try and be a good leader. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Will Wilkinson. And I'm Christopher Harding, and you can reach us at thrivinginbusinessandlife at gmail.com. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>